Hey folks, it's Jeremy Kirkland. You're listening to Blammo. Some good fun this week. We got a new week. We got spring. Spring is in the air. I mean, we're nearly there. The spring fits. The spring food. Wait, is there a spring food? What the hell am I doing? I don't know. Is it salad? I don't know, but I'm into spring everything right now. Speaking of, I went to uh, I went to the tailor the other day. And and before I get too deep, before before we jump into the episode, I've just I you know I got to flag this. I have a tailor in St. Louis, and it's very hit or miss. You've probably heard me discuss this before. Sometimes they just nail it, and other times they ruin it. <laughs> but I love them, and I'm so glad they're in my community. Uh, it's there's a lovely woman named Natalia. Uh, anyway, I digress. So I'm in there, and I'm I'm picking up my pants, and uh, I'm like, hey, you know how how you doing? Uh, and she's like, yes. And uh, I, I could tell she was sad. Like, she went to go get my pants, and she just looked so, so sad. And I was like, oh, no. Like, I mean, this is highly unusual for Natalia. I was like, oh, man. I was like, what's going on? And she hands me my pants. It just looked like she'd been crying. And I'm like, you know, so I got my pants. I'm like, Natalia, what, what's, what's happening? She's like, oh, my dog, Ali. And I was like, oh, uh, oh, no. And, you know, she begins to tell me about her dog's cancer but how he's united the family, how she adopted him, rehabilitated him. And, you know, he did the same for their family. In the meantime, it, it was lovely. You know, and I ended up standing there for like 10 minutes just, just listening to her. And I'll, I'll tell you, like as a side, grief really bonds us all. Like to just, when you stop and think about it, like all of us, you know, we, we, we really bond together over grief and over pain. But, you know, I'm sitting there just hearing this. My heart was just broken with this, you know, with, with her dog, Allie. And I was like, look, you know, I didn't know what to say. Um, but I was like, do you want a hug? Which, uh, you know, I guess we're past COVID. This is fine to do. So I gave her a big hug. And, uh, you know, and I, I reminded her of all the amazing memories she has, at least the ones that she told me. And, uh, you know, and I, I told her, I was like, look, I remember when I had to put my dog down and it, it really worked for me. I think about my dog, Peggy, every day. And I'm so thankful for the memories that I had, even though she's not here anymore, you know, and it's just like, damn, community, life, life is beautiful, except for my fucking pants, because she just obliterated them. And, you know, I get back into the car and I look at him and I'm like, damn it. Like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, Turn around and, and, and be like, hey, sorry about Ali, but can, can you please fix this tire fire of fabric I have now instead of pants? I was so upset. <laughs> you know, I'm like, whatever. This is so annoying. I, I feel bad for Sela V, I suppose. Shout out to Ali. I hope Natalia never made you clothes, little homie. Uh, enjoy the big bone in the sky and the serene heavenly music up there. And yes, I do believe dogs are in heaven, so don't at me about it. Uh, speaking of heavenly music. Whole other note, my guest this week is record producer Gordon Raphael. Gordon is best known for producing The Strokes, The Libertines, and countless other bands that have shaped modern American music. I mean, just mo- modern music in general. Jeez Louise. But we discuss his recently released memoir, The World is Going to Love This, Up from the Basement with The Strokes, what the term producer means today, what albums to listen to with headphones. You know, I'm into that right now. Hot takes from recording at Abbey Road. Quite surprising. Not vibing with Harry Styles and the current state of music. Let's go. Mr. Gordon Raphael, thank you. Thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of your work. Thank you very much. It's great being here. Yeah. You know, I, I did. I haven't finished your book. 
because I, I picked it up maybe a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and was looking through it. But um, there's a ton of stuff I want I want to talk to you about. You've produced and some pretty legendary stuff. I mean, from the Strokes and and Libertines and Regina Spector and I mean the mile long list. But you know, I am kind of curious because there's previously I feel like that the role of a music producer and correct me if I'm wrong or all you want was was almost like this babysitter type person that was like when you think like George Martin style person who was like a little bit of a babysitter but knew way more than everyone else was right. able to like wrangle people and funnel talent mm-hmm. and nowadays it feels like a lot of these other bands that are not like Max Martin you know uh bred individuals are just making music on their phone and then putting it out on like Instagram, not even not even on a regular distribution thing. Right. So I'm, I am kind of curious, like how you have felt the role or your role as a producer has evolved over the years. Well, my my role hasn't changed that much, but there's the the actual job title of producer, as you say, has splintered and come into many different kinds of categories. Like right. even in hip hop, the guy who's called the producer is the guy who might have written half the song or all the song <laughs> except for the vocals. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's a it's a wide job. Job. And sometimes the producer in the past has been a guy who works with the record label and the radio station. And he knows yeah. how to make Bill at the record label not lose his job by, you know, shaping the band just be a certain way. And he knows what, you know, Arthur over at the radio station is going to play and what he won't play. If it has a G minor chord, he won't play it. So make it a G major <laughs> chord, like this kind of stuff. When I became yeah. a producer, I came at it through producing my own stuff. And I worked with lots of older, experienced, know-it-all kind of guys that would always try to talk me out of my crazy ideas. And I realized at a certain point that when I do my crazy ideas at home, even though it's not as professional sounding, it's got some magic in it. And when I let those guys tell me what to do, it's kind of clean and professional, but there's nothing special about it that makes people really get into it. So I thought, Mm. if somebody's going to pay me money, the first thing I'm going to do is find out what do you want? You know, what are you interested in here? And I tend Mm -hmm. to find that the people, at least that I work with, are extremely smart and they have billions of ideas. They've actually been practicing this music and writing it with each other for months and months. So they have opinions on what it should sound like, how fast it Mm -hmm. should be, whether the solo's too long, whether it needs a fade out. They have a lot of ideas. So I let them show me their ideas first and then maybe I'll have an extra idea to lay on top or if I want to mm-hmm. discuss something with them I can it's just an yeah. interesting way of working more like respecting the musicians like giving them credit for knowing what the hell they're doing and you know <laughs> in the old days a label might pay millions of dollars and the band comes to the studio knowing they full well have three years of time at this luxurious ranch in California and they didn't write right, any right. they didn't write any songs and one guy's going through a nasty divorce and two of them are always at the bar and they never seem to show up and maybe a After eight months of studio time, they'll start writing, jamming, and see if they can keep something together long enough to write a song. Well, that's not today's world at all. Today's world is the band is working hard in their practice room because they're going to save up their own pennies and they're going to hire Gordon Raphael and a studio and a place for me to sleep and an airplane ticket, you know? Right, right. And they've got five days or nine days to make a whole album. So they're going to be very prepared and they're going to be very coherent. They're not going to be start drinking beers at nine in the morning. No, they're just not. (laughs) 
They might start drinking beers after the sessions are over or after the last day sure. of the session, but they all know, God damn it, our life depends on this. We have our money riding on it and nobody's going to take care of us if, 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 if we have to go over. So it's a very much fo- more focused participatory event than it used to be in the babysitting days of yore. Yeah, and it's, there's a bit more um, like ownership in terms of their music because it, it feels like nowadays bands will pay for all of their own stuff and then license their their album, mm-hmm. you know, in the masters to the label versus mm-hmm. being more or less owned by the label and yes. the label, you know, like fronting all that stuff for them. Like, do you think that that ever interferes with the art in in terms of sometimes being so prepared, you you know, maybe you miss energy that's happening in the room? Or is it, I'm, I'm curious. I think it was more dangerous to the art when the A&R guy would get everybody together and say, you could include this song on the album, but I have word from above that you'll be dropped if you do, but you can make oh your own God. decision. You know, there was all kinds of weird pressure play from executives Ugh. from the label coming into the studio and putting weird vibes on bands or even pressurizing producers to like back them up and like, hey, tell them to cut that guitar solo. We don't need another damn guitar solo. You know, like there was all kinds of interference really? coming. Man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you know, or <sighs> there's so many stories about bands that make an album and then they turn it in and the label says, we ain't releasing that. We don't hear a single go back in the studio and do it again. Well, I just gave you my 12 most favorite songs that I've been working on for years. I wrote all these lyrics on my trip. You know, I'm really into, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, we're not, our label isn't interested in that. Even though we signed you, you know, try again. And what that feeling must right. be like to turn in 12 beautiful pieces of music and have, no, not good enough. You know, not going to make it. <laughs> not, we're not putting that out. <laughs> do you end up becoming like de facto counselor? Because I mean, obviously in your book where you talk about recording the strokes, you were kind of like, you know, I don't know, the sixth band member or something or, you know, um, but like there, there was a lot of, you were much more involved than say like what someone may view as someone just like pushing faders. Right, right. Well, did you say counselor, right? Not like a counselor, (laughs) but from the very moment, even, you know, when talking to a band that's suddenly interested in working with you, you know, as a person with lots of experience, as a creative person who's been around and talked to a lot of artists, there's ways you talk to people that make them want to work with you from the first conversation. You know, there's ways in the studio where people are already in a good mood before they've even started playing and with kind of high hopes and high energy, because I know as a producer, that no matter how expensive my microphone is, if the band isn't in a good mood and they can't hear themselves and they're not ready to play like hell, my great microphones are just going to capture lackluster, fear-filled, angry performances, you know? Yeah. And I want to capture confident, angry performances. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I would say a lot of your music has a specific energy in it. Um, You know, and I don't know if if everything is recorded in a room, you know, like I I remember I had heard because like to go back to the specific sort of era there to where, you know, like Strokes and Kings of Leon, say like Kings of Leon, they had youth and young manhood and that was a great record. No one really got it. They had to go over to the UK to get big to come back over here. And then they did Aha Shake Heartbreak. And I think that was Ethan Johns, maybe. It was Glenn Johns' son. Mm-hmm. And the big thing that threw everyone off initially in terms of some of the sonic aspects of it was that it was it was recorded together, like in, in a room right. versus, uh, you know, and I'll say this for listeners, versus like some stuff where it's like, okay, go record the drums and the, play the drums. Okay, all right, yeah. leave. Now you come in and play the guitar. And there was just, so there's an energy in there. And when 
I heard that, I was like, oh my God. And I went and re-listened to Is This It? And, you know, and even some of the, you know, in looking back now at like Libertines and, and, and Room on Fire and stuff like that, like it, it feels like there's just this energy of a live show in there. Right. Uh, I'm just curious, like how you kind of go about that, that capturing the performance. Well, there's a lot of information in my book about the philosophy and how history yeah. changes the philosophy. You know, yeah. by the end of the 90s, when computers were there and productions could get bigger than ever, everyone was carefully, scientifically recording everything because it was more important how the samples of the kick drum and the 808 kick drum would fit together with the drummer than how the drummer yes. was talking to the guitar player. And they, they were always thinking about the technical sounds. And for me, I realized that bands play better when they're in the same room, looking at each other, just like a practice, just like a show, you know, just like hearing things with their ears and their bodies instead of headphones. All that yeah. stuff... Just kind of hit me around the time I was working with the Strokes. They said, yeah. you know, they gave me a directive. They said, the first time I ever met them in the studio, they said, hey, you know what everybody else is doing in New York? And I go, yeah. They said, that's what we don't want to do. I go, oh, okay. That, oh. Gave me, that gave me a great idea. What everybody's not doing, just go out and play your song. I have eight microphone capability in my studio. I'll record your band with eight microphones and that will be a new sound because that's not what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, it's... In you know, to kind of go back to some of the album stuff now, I know Strokes were, they were what? They were Rough Trade on XXUS. I don't remember what that was. Maybe Sony in, in the US. But like when that was turned in and it's done, what, what did, you know, and I know you've discussed this in some of this stuff in the book. So, I mean, humor me for, um, but like, what was that, that friction like? Well, they were unsigned in the US when we started the album. You know, things were buzzing. Okay. They were already buzzing in the UK through Rough Trade. And there was rumors yeah. of bidding wars and there's all kinds of buzz happening in the US. So they knew and I knew it wouldn't be long till they're signed. Right, and right. they went out with lots of re record companies for dinners and chats. And every day they'd come in the studio saying how awful these people were and how boring they were and everything. And they made big show of how disdained they felt towards this record company executives. Well, one day they said, <laughs> we signed to RCA. I think they're going to be the best for us. Oh, it's RCA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, long story short, but there's lots of funny words about it in the book. Um, yeah. The guy who signed them to RCA came to my studio and listened to what we were creating and took the boys aside uh, without me knowing about it and said, here's a list of the best producers in the world. If you would get rid of this clown over here, Gordon Raphael, I will up, I'll increase your budget. I will do everything I can. And you can use any of these big, big record producers. And he just thought the sound I made, he said it was very unprofessional, immature. I had no idea what I was doing. And the best part, he said, I was ruining the chances of the band to have a career. My fist was clenched over hearing you uh, say that. Uh, how, how did that, how did you handle that? What, what did that do to your ego? I mean, obviously you won, but. Yeah, but I mean, it was like in the moment that I heard this, you know, I was yeah. scared. I was disappointed. I was sad. Like, oh my God, they're taking this away. I could be maybe famous or, you know, Maybe we're going to be, you know, I thought I was going to ride with them on this great adventure. Yeah. And now this guy is standing in my way. And on one level, I felt a little bit of confidence because everything I was doing was in conjunction with the band's ideas. You know, I never mm -hmm. showed them a sound and said, this is what we're doing. I said, is this the right. sound you want for your vocal? And Julia said, I love that. That's great. Uh, do you want the drums this loud, Fab? Yeah, that sounds really good. Even though it's not as loud as Led Zeppelin, This we're kind of doing something different. 
different here. You know, so I was actually with them checking every button fader move. They were interested. All of them were interested. So I thought, you know, if they're going to go around me, if the label is going to replace me, they're going to have to like actually deal with the band because it's their ideas as well that I'm executing here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. I mean, just just kind of enduring. I mean, obviously you you won. And I, I think it's it's one of the greatest records. I mean, Room on Fire and and Is This It to me are aspects of my of my life. Um, you know, I mean, and they they mean so much to me. Hearing the friction that in the energy in the room, I mean, I, the words escape me to try to capture the emotion I'm trying to convey, um, is something that has really caused me lately. And I've talked about this in previous podcasts to now start to re-listen to records from start to finish. I have a, I have this little DAC converter so I could listen to stuff on like 24 bit and sit in that chair behind me with headphones and listen to albums start to finish in the highest bit rate I, that that's available to me and just process it. And it's, it's made me more emotional, more, um, you know, more like in touch with reality and myself in a weird way. And it's been like one of the most healing things that's ever happened in my life is just like having a deeper relationship with music versus what I, you know, and I'm not above or better than anyone, but like, it's not a passive, Oh, here's a song. And I'm going to listen to it on like shitty 90, 6k you know whatever like some sort of junk um on you know on airpods like and so i i'm so enraptured and in love with with the energy that you've created that captures and lives in perpetuity like it's it's just it's so incredible to me to where you know and this is something i'd love to talk to you about too i always make a joke that for me it feels like the 1970s were like one of the best eras for recorded music because their technology wasn't that available. Like the fact that Dark Side of the Moon was was done on 16 tracks is just, I don't, it does not compute. Like, you know, when you think of all that stuff. So one of the question I'm asking from this rant is, do you feel that the progression of technology and unlimited tracks and quantizing and and all that stuff. Do you feel that's hindered art or created a whole new art? I'm going to go back to what you were talking about because (laughs) you hit on some really big core values, okay? The first one is quality of sound, like how you hear music. You know, it's it's hard to yeah. form certain kinds of relationships with music coming through laptop speakers or phone speakers. One of the best things yeah. you can do with that relationship is get excited about how many other friends across the world are listening to it at the same time. You know, like, oh, yeah. it yeah. sounds like this, but look how all those zeros. This is really exciting music. Okay. <laughs> then there's a guy like me. I have a little three-story house in the in a valley and surrounded by mountains i have a stereo system in each floor with a record player and i have various kind i think i have six sets of speakers in my house some of which are really incredible and i listen to vinyl and cd's all the time if i'm not working i'm just listening to music i listen when i go to sleep i listen when i wake up and i've been that way my whole life now yeah. there's something that happens when a certain sensitive type of person hears great music in a really cool way you start thinking a lot of thoughts about the power of music songwriting people playing together instruments and i think that no matter what the technology is, that everybody who's doing something incredible has this uh, experience of taking music to heart and of like really thinking it's important, it's incredible, it's one of the best things we could spend our time doing is like working on scales and putting songs together and singing and playing shows. There's a kind of person, and it doesn't matter what technology they're using, a synthesizer or a grand piano, a bunch of samples on a laptop, it's just 
how is their relationship to music and how are they translating that and expressing it to the crowd, you know, to the world, okay? And I just want to say one more thing uh, along with... Yeah, please. Yeah, have you heard, your time. Have you heard this album called In a Silent Way by Miles Davis on, on your headphone journey yet? I don't... To be honest, I've... My, I listen to Miles Davis a bunch of I young, don't, younger, but I, never like full bit rate. Yeah, you know? I don't. I don't listen to Miles Davis. I don't listen to jazz. But that record, I noticed a long time ago that if you listen to it on decent speakers, you can hear things that are just uncanny. It's a room with instruments in it, and whoever recorded that, I forget his name. I think it's Tall something or other. Like the way it's recorded, it's one of the greatest sounding records. I've ever heard. And whenever I test speakers, I put that on because in the right situation, you can just hear things into the air that are remarkable and magic. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely have to add that on there. I remember I used to test speakers by listening to uh, Lindsey Buckingham's Don't Look Down. Um, which is like the, you know, it's the Spanish guitar part at the very beginning. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think it was probably recorded digitally. I, I don't know. It was in, came out like nineties, early nineties, right. but that, that like my dad, you know, we had NS tens in various places, which, you know, I'll say on record too, that it's a kind of a shitty speaker. It's very flat, but it, it, you know, it, it always, my dad was always like, Oh, this is how, you know, you're hearing this without any enhancements, right, you know? Right. And he's like, you need to sit in this chair. And now, you know, cause he, he would sit on a, you know, he, he had a board and he had the NS10s like every other producer there and um, would sit and listen to that stuff and that was always like how we tested music was that Lindsey Buckingham song cool. um, but yeah I, I listened to um, what was it like I, I feel like I only got into Dylan like much later as an adult and um, I listened to Blood on the Tracks which like a lot of people they're going to roll their eyes at and I listened to it at the and I mean I wept like this I'm dead serious this is not part of it is me being older and having kids and stuff now but I was like oh my god you know and I've read countless Dylan books. And so knowing the the fact that it's this breakup record and like Jacob Dylan, you know, hates listening to it because it was like the separation of his life but the, the love that like Dylan has. And I mean, it's 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 insane. And I was just like, this is this is no different than reading like the Iliad and the Odyssey, where there's just this pure expression of, you know, sonic emotion. It's it's really moved me yeah. a ton. I didn't find that album until <laughs> my adult life as well. And from the yeah. when I heard it, it just like what I knocked me out. It made me like a giant Dylan fan. Just to make that record. It's a mon right? it's a monumental record. Do you have any, you know, out of curiosity, do you have any albums that you stand and love that people overlook uh, 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 hundreds hundreds I would I would bore <laughs> you I mean literally I have thousands of albums and most of the things I listen to people either turn their nose up at hate the idea of it or never okay. never heard of it you know an album like okay. you know how many people talk about Genesis Lamb Lies Down on Broadway these days you know how many Hell people yeah. okay. how many people chat about it you know that one of the greatest human artistic achievement not only record the story the lyrics the concept just the attitude and the vision in that record let alone the production the playing the sounds the songwriting yeah, you know it's yeah. you know it doesn't get better than that oh man Genesis I never would have pegged you pulling out a 
Genesis reference. I mean, that is the ultimate for, I think, like any serious music guys, you you revert to Phil Collins and, and all those guys, they were, they kind of hated each other. That was a really, that was a really particularly <laughs> tough album for them. And then the Peter, yeah. Peter Gabriel, the singer, left right after it. But yeah, it was very interesting that they wrote it in the same house, in the same room that Led Zeppelin recorded their fourth album in Wales. I didn't know that till recently. They were in that same studio, this little house that they rented in Wales. You know, Led oh Zeppelin did Stairway to Heaven and that whole album there. And then Genesis wrote, their, they wrote the music, you know, to the, that album there. And seems perfect to me. Do you do you have any superstitions or believe that like certain rooms or locations enhance an artist? No, I have some favorite studios just because they're so pretty and they make such great sounds. But yeah. I'm more concerned about, like, there's a guy who when he opens his mouth, strange things come out of it and great words. And <laughs> I could record it on my phone and it'll still be interesting. And if I bring along a normal Sennheiser microphone, it's going to be amazing. And if I get him in the studio, it's going to be amazing. So it's more about what I'm oh. recording than the place. Wow. I, I'm. Are you over or under Abbey Road? Ah, it's funny because I just worked there for the first time at Christmas. Never been there. Okay. I never even walked by the building. I thought, I'll never go yeah, there. Yeah, I saw on your I'll never Instagram. go there. Yeah. So why should I walk by, you know, whatever. And, you know, being there for seven days in the room of the Beatles, in the cafeteria where mm-hmm. they ate, you know, it was like a miracle. And my engineers were crying, like they were weeping to be there because they could hear the sounds from the albums on the room. But I'll tell you something, and I don't mind saying it. They had the worst designed control room I've ever been in, even worse than like music schools or kids' rooms or my living room. Because when I got home with all that magic that we captured, the recordings were okay, but the mix Mm -hmm. that the control room was showing me through their 29 pairs of million-dollar speakers was ass wrong. And even the engineers from Abbey Road were telling me the whole time, like, Hey, don't really trust this room with your mix. Don't really trust this room. You know, they were telling me that. And it's oh like there's different equipment in from when the Beatles were. There's much more equipment. There's bigger, more modern, fancier equipment. And whatever it is, they have made the fatal mistake and never bothered to fix it of having a room that lies to you that you really can't hear what's going on. And it's like in American dollars, it must be like, $3,300 a day. Plus, oh, you want to record on Pro Tools? We'll rent you the computer at a little extra charge per day. You know, it's- Get out of town. It's the most expensive, craziest studio. And being there, you just are thinking you're in heaven. But when you actually come listen to what you've got, it's like, man, this room, eat their room eats bass. So you think you've captured a drum set and you just have this rumble. You have to then spend days- taking the rumble out of the drums because their room wouldn't show it to you. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm speechless. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've never been there, but you know, I, I just watched that documentary to where everyone really glorified it. And I've, I've met a few producers over the years that believe certain rooms have auras or energy and it's not even a religious thing. They're just like, Oh, because the things that was here, it's going to cause someone to think differently, you know, but it sounds like uh, audio is is not uh, is audio is impartial. Uh, I guess the the integrity, <laughs> the sonic integrity of the control room needs some work, but the mag- <laughs> okay. the magic of the equipment 
and the magic of sure. the rooms is real. And of course, Abbey Road does most of their big work in the orchestra room where they make the soundtracks mm-hmm. for all the motion pictures in UK and US. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. day in and day out. You've got orchestras coming in playing some of the greatest music ever for films. That's yeah. a real big deal. And I'm sure that room is just fine. Otherwise, there'd be very big complaints about it. <laughs> What about real world while we're on the topic? I haven't been there, you know, always wanted to go. There's supposed to be like a river flowing under the drum booth and you can see it through the clear floor. And yeah, that's Peter Gabriel's studio for listeners. And I always heard that he took his canoe from his house and would canoe down the stream to work, you know. Oh my God. Love that guy. (laughs) That's incredible. As you've watched music evolve, you know, I mean, you know, on my, I was talking about how the, I thought like the 1970s were great. Like, do, do you feel that the addition of, of technology is better or worse for the creation of music now? If I hear a piece of music and the most noteworthy and interesting thing that comes across is the producer or the technology or something that they've used in it, then I think it's a fail. Mm. It's a failure. It's not a real piece of music, you know? I think that music yeah. comes from the imagination and the desire to express something. And if at the end of the right. day, if it's made on an iPhone, if it's made on hip hop, FL Studio, whatever, FL, Pro, whatever, Studio Pro, um, or in a yeah. giant classical music room, all those places can make crappy music and they can also make music that you, makes you shake your head and go like, wow, what am I hearing? It's really down to the, the, the heart and the expression of what is being talked about, you know, and what the intention is. That's my view. You know, I hear so much music that is highly produced and it's just what I call vapid. There's nothing there. It's just some Great word. some re- recycling sounds and some lyrics you've heard from every, from hundreds of people have used those same words in their songs. There's no reason to do that because every day you have conversations with people using new words to describe situations that you're in. You don't have to copy someone else's down to their words. Yeah. What's the most recent thing that you've heard that you weren't involved in that you really love? There's two artists that came across. It was five years ago. Three. Okay. Lil Peep, XXXTentacion, and Absol. Yeah. Those three artists, I've heard many, many songs from each of them that have made me go like, wow, you know. There are so many creative things being done in music and there's so new sounds that I don't, I'm a producer. I've been working my whole life in music, but when I hear those songs, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know how they do it, but Mm. I really, really like it. Wow. Yeah. I would not have pegged that because I imagine there's so many, you know, you're, you're a producer who's who obviously is a producer, but also to many people, they their career is trying to capture what you did. Um, you know, where people will listen to recordings you've done and really try to analyze them. Do you? How does that sit with you? Like, do you or do you? Are you enjoying that, or do you feel that's like someone should make their own way? Um, I haven't heard too much music that emulates. Like, let's say, Is This It or Room on Fire that I think is compelling at all, you know? I think Fair. I think the same person that would settle for a sound that's already there is, is already in a mediocre creative mindset, you know? It'd be one thing if they 
pop in a reference in the middle of a song. And even that, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. There's three things. The Strokes' early music for me it had an element of chaos, okay? It, yes. It had also an element of incredible precision. And yeah. it had like these, inc- these awesome players, you know, like Nick Valencia playing guitar solos, Julian's voice. Incredible guitar His solo. voice and his yeah. lyrics, okay? So when you're going to show me a production, you know, people are afraid of chaos. They're big producers in big studios on budgets. They're not going to say like, I got an idea. In this section, just go crazy. Just go crazy. Really push it. Nobody wants you to push it. They want you to like kind of play it so that it can go on the radio, play it so that we have a chance to sell a few more copies. It's all kind of tamed down. Okay, on that element. Mm. On the precision end, very few musicians are going to want to work to practice hard enough to be so completely tight as like the strokes were, even when they were 22 years old. You know, the yeah, amount yeah. of military precision they had and how much rehearsal and effort they put. Not many people, including producers, I think, want to spend the time to achieve that natural precision. Okay? And yeah. then, you know, those the lyric, like the lyrics, you know, who's going to write lyrics? like that? Who's going to make a phrase? Everybody has kind of boring, really easy, everyday speech lyrics now. And the first Mm. couple albums of The Strokes did not have, like, what is he talking about? I have no idea, but I like it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, because the thing about some of the Libertine stuff too, I mean, that was extremely chaotic, you know, almost that I, it's it's great to see uh, Pete Doherty, who, you know, congrats, he's, he's sober, he's really, he's doing fantastic. I'm, I, I am on cloud nine watching him you know, take care of his body and his health and being a sober individual. But there was some stuff there. And I, I have a few friends who were, you know, and even Julian has talked about this too, where they're like, you people love a certain era that to the artist that was in that era, they are trying to run away from that. Right. And so when they go and they perform, you know, um, they're like, well, no, this is the new me. Look, I'm happy. I'm healthy. You know, it's when people would like criticize Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. And it's like, oh, my God, he's happy now. I don't want to listen to his music. Yes. It, it even affected Hendrix. I mean, he only had a three year career. Sure. And by year two yeah. and a half. When the crowd was screaming for Purple Haze, he looked like his party was over. You know, he was so grumpy and he was so, he would say really mean things into the mic. Like he'd say things like, listen, when I say toilet paper, that's when you come rolling out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, re- he really had, he really had no patience. He didn't want to play that old stuff. He had a new me already after two years. He wanted to yeah. show the world. Yeah, that's that's stuff that I think about a ton to where I often wonder with the relationship that I impose of myself on these musicians, is it fair to them? Because some people will be like, well, these guys are rich, da, 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 and it's like, yeah, but like if someone only wants something that you cringe at or that is an is an area of your life that is uh, traumatic, you know, is, is it fair to ask that of them? And I... I, you know, I wrestle with that often when I really glorify some of these things, because to me, the memories that I have of, I don't know, X or Y band, they're joyous. I don't, I don't look at them through the pain or the frustration that they might've been going through, you know, with their body or mentally or emotionally. And so it's, it's always hard. Sometimes I feel like there's certain stuff I can't listen to because I I feel like it might be disservice to who the artist is now. Yeah. It's a very strange dichotomy. On one hand, if (laughs) if you write a song and no one ever asks you to play it, it's extremely depressing. And if you write a song and people ask you to play it and play it and play it and play it for years and years and play it, it's also depressing Mm -hmm. and distressing. So (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd rather have people, the problem where people want to hear a song over and over again than for them to ignore my music. Yeah. Are there songs that you can't listen to anymore or in, that, that are harder on you? In the world or from my own re- repertoire of songwriting? Maybe both. Not really. I still like a lot of the stuff that I liked when I was 10 years old and I listened to it and I can appreciate it, you know? Yeah. What, what was the stuff that you were listening to when you were 10 that you still go we back to? We had radio stations. So I listened to whatever the, oh, whatever yeah. the radio stations were playing. And recently on like Spotify, I was saying like, okay, there's a playlist called Top Hits of 1968. Let's play it. And I go, oh yeah, I remember liking that song. Oh, Great year for that's music. a good song. 69. Oh, listen, I didn't know that happened. Oh, great. I love those songs. Remember them all. You know, 70. You know, I, I went, I think, from 67 to 73. And it's just like... Great era. Yeah, tons of great songs were on the radio. Yeah. I mean, there's that's the one thing that I think about from Spotify. As, a, as someone who I have a relationship with music digitally, but I don't really enjoy it. Like, I still... You know, m- my kind of mindset, which it sounds kind of messed up, is like, I'll first try to buy the music on Bandcamp uh, or and I'll, I'll buy the CD or the or the wax and uh if, if it's if it's an artist that I think like my support actually matters like there's no point in me buying new morning for the 500th time or whatever I mean it, it doesn't make Dylan's fine he sold all of his publishing anyway but like when I think of other artists I'm like okay I, I want to own that I want to support that person but my relationship with Spotify has really been interesting because and I'm curious if you know, if you find this too, because all music is new in a way, because everything's in front of you versus traditionally in the past, I'd go to a record store, you know, and this is in the nineties or something. And I would see that I'm air quoting new music. And that's what I would gravitate towards, you know, and that's, that's how I found okay computer and stuff like that. And I never would have found it otherwise, but now new music for many people is rumors from Fleetwood Mac, you know? And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting on how people are engaging with it because the, the playing field is so level in terms of how they're, they're listening. I think that's one of the most exciting things in the world. When I, someone introduced me to the concept that for the new generation of music listeners, Gordon, it doesn't matter if it's 62 or 2023, it's when they hear it for the first time, that's called newness. And if they like it, yes. if they like it, it's a new <laughs> song that they like. Like that was so liberating because I thought, well, what am I going to do with these songs from 1980 that I wrote? Who's going to want to hear them when they find out it's from 1980? Well, actually, there's a chance that there's a bunch of people that you know are younger than you even imagine that when they hear that they'll think that is a crazy ass sound what is that you know <laughs> and they'll find it yeah i mean that's I often wonder, you know, because I still have a lot of friends who work at Beggars and they've been like, you know, to have a new album, you're also competing with all of the music that's been released. Mm-hmm. You, it's, you're not so much competing with whatever else was dropping that right. week. You yeah. know, it's because they used to, you know, I'd read in the past that the Stones and the Beatles would would message each other to ensure that someone's album wasn't dropping on that same week so they right. could do that. And obviously that doesn't really exist anymore because now, yeah, if I make a new album, I'm competing with someone who just discovered Jim Croce. Well, <laughs> it's like, I remember this time when I was really starting to go to record shops that I could actually tell if I went two months later what the new records were in the shop. Like I just look around and go, okay, I haven't seen this cover before. Interesting. Oh, look, you know, I could, it felt great to know all the new releases that were coming into the record shop. You know, that was really brilliant. And certainly how could you even keep up? How could you even begin to make a dent on what is it? A hundred thousand songs a day are going up or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and on, you know, and I kind of touched on this earlier. On one hand, I'm very excited because people can make music on their own, but I also, I feel like, (laughs) 
I sound like such an asshole. I feel like it's it's a lot of work for me because, you know, when I talk about like music from the 70s, you know, like really only the stuff that was recorded was the stuff that was really, really good. Now it's like, I feel, you know, I sound elitist, but I feel like there's a lot of music that's released now that I don't find good. And so I have to like sort through the noise. Okay, I want to jump in with two strange concepts. One is that- Please. I'm very aware that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, certainly the 80s, that there were mountains and mountains of horrifyingly bad music being created and produced and marketed all over the U.S. when I was growing up. You know, I I didn't like, I like probably 1% of all the music I hear in the world I like. You know, I still have Uh thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that I desperately love. But they, Mm -hmm. in my view, like, it's not that it's bad or awful music. It's just I have no use for it. Like, it just sounds like crap to me. And I just don't even want to hear. And I'd rather hear silence than hear a lot of music. Okay. So. In every era, there has been that. And then I think there's something, I think that magic is, this may be a very controversial viewpoint, but it might be very natural. I think music is Mm -hmm. tied in with the realm of magic. Like how you hear a song and how it comes into your mm-hmm. life. Like most of the music I heard, I'd be over at a friend's house and his mom would be playing a radio or I'd go to the drugstore and they happen to be playing something in there or I'd go to a record shop and there's a really strange cover that really speaks to me. Yeah. And I take it home because for $5 at the time to have that piece of art staring at me seemed cool in my room. And then, wow, the music on it was perfect. You know, I think that yeah. it's very magical, even recently, when I lived in London in the early 2000s, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends at a bar and some band was playing on the on the stage, you know, and I'm trying to chat over the band. But at a certain point, I'm not chatting. I'm looking at the band. I'm going, my God, who are these people? And it's Block Party, you know, playing some, er- oh, some yeah. early show. I'm just out having fun with friends. And there happens to be a band in the background, and it's those guys, you know? Is this like Silent Alarm era? It's like the, be, probably before their first album even came, just like right at the beginning when they're okay. playing pubs in Camden, okay? So yeah. I think that the way music finds you is magic, even though many, uh, I don't know, music business pundits and mathematicians and statisticians would say, no, it's all an algorithm and a percentage, you well, know? I think the, the sure. way people... The way it captures people's heart, and then they want to talk to their friends about it, and you find out about it because of that. It's magic, and that good music has a tendency to reach the people's ears who need to hear it. That's all. No, that's 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 fantastic. Because I, I do, you know, I used to have, you know, the record store that I'd go to that would introduce me to stuff. And I have a couple friends that I trust whose I think our music tastes align or are so far off that the weight of each person's recommendations I really absorb and like but it's been very difficult for me to find you know new music uh because one i find myself reverting back to older records to listen to and have a deeper relationship with um but also i don't know who's the person or the outlet or the source i don't really i'm not anti-pitchfork but i don't really have the relationship with it anymore rolling stone all these things i I don't really there's no person there that's like my guy that i trust it's so it is difficult um 
and for you, is it is it's it sounds like you're just seeing um, live music. I haven't and gone being to too many live or? shows since the pandemic. Only a handful of live shows. Um, yeah, touche. For me, yeah, I feel very lucky because bands yeah. contact me to record them, and I wind up meeting a lot of very interesting bands. Uh, I just recorded a band from a little area called Lincolnshire, yeah. and the town called Boston, which is okay. actually where Familiar. our Boston and U.S. came from. And these guys, they're called Vigilantes, and they played for two days. They recorded five songs with me okay. that are just epic, like absolutely epic. So I had a great time working with them. And I met a band from the US called Cab Ellis, C-A-B Ellis. And they were from LA mm. at the time, but now they live in New York. And they made an incredible album with me that I, I don't know, I never would have heard that music before. And they're hugely, I'm a huge fan right now. Mm-hmm. Nice. That, yeah, that's good to know. I mean, there's there's definitely stuff, but like in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, how, how do I find them? You know, I mean, I try to go to live shows. It, weirdly, it's much easier to see lots of live music in the Midwest now than it was in New York because a lot of people still come through here and I see people in very small venues um, versus like, you know, I can see uh, the smile, right? With like radio, uh, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood at a 1500 person venue here or 18,000 in New York. <laughs> yeah, so I I get to do that, but it it's been it's still tough for me as someone, you know. So I've I found like I, I end up just going on like YouTube and things and watching, you know. I did get really into that band Fontaine's DC. Mm-hmm. I think they're out of Ireland. Yep. Did you have you heard them? I have, yeah. Actually. There was yeah, there was some good, you know, rawness from them. It, it definitely sounded very uh Gordon Raphael in some ways. I, I don't okay. know. <laughs> but yeah, there was it's yeah there there was like a a good amount of like angst in their music uh that i really you know, I liked a lot, but I I, re- I read a lot of music press. You know, I, mm. I'm on NME. I'm I'm always reading articles or so social media, this and that. So yeah. I'm always clicking a link and looking for bands, looking at what they're talking about. And unfortunately, really, I don't ninety ninety eight percent of the time I click and it looks so cool, and I just don't really dig the music. I just don't dig it, mm. or it just sounds like oh, there's that voice again, that same voice that everybody's using right now, whether it's female or male, there's a certain delivery. There's a certain way of talking that's, as I said, it's a matter of fact. You know, I want to make sure you understand that I'm an artist talking to you. You can relate (laughs) to my story. You know, I like those crazy, I like those crazy poets, you know, where you hear their words and you go like, how did you even put those words together? And I love like Leonard Cohen, where's Where's our Leonard Cohen? Where's our Bob Dylan? You know, there's something they were doing that was incredibly off in outer space. Well, those, yeah, I mean, and those two artists that you mentioned, they evolved Mm -hmm. a lot, Mm -hmm. right? When someone says they like Leonard Cohen, you're like, okay, well, which one? Mm -hmm. Or Dylan, you're like, well, which era? You know, and I feel like now the, the life span of a musician or an artist, you know, is so short and intense to where it's like, I don't know if there could be a, another Dylan because there was, you know, his career was, is I mean, it's still going obviously, but like there was, it took a while. You know, when you look at other artists, I mean, they, they basically have to have be extremely well-funded or have some sort of label that believes in them. I mean, those guys did, even like Paul Simon and stuff like that, like those guys didn't hit for a while, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it is fascinating to me, but yeah, they're, I mean, Dylan's lyrics. David Bowie, like my and he had some Perfect pe- different people stuck with him, stuck with him until he became like front page news. But that yeah. that doesn't happen. Nobody wants to talk to you unless you have a, already a number of zeros after your name, you know, and people yeah. think, wow, it's so easy now to tell who's popular. You know, we don't have to risk it. 
you know, but it's, it's a completely different way of looking at. Yeah. I have a few friends that are still working in the industry. And one of them said that they spend all their time now looking for new artists on TikTok. Curious what your take is on that. Well, I always thought that all of the A&R at all the labels just have rooms of high school grad business graduates looking at, at, looking at TikTok for them so they don't have to do that. They can look Ah, at that. They can look at, they can do their Amazon ordering and look at their stock portfolio and have meetings with the boss to see how their you know how their tenure in the company is doing while these sure. these guys who are actually trained in analysis of numbers are looking at numbers all day in little cubicles for ten dollars an hour you know that's how yeah that's how they're going to find the next interesting music so you were at universal when when was this the other day <laughs> I'm in, I'm there in my mind all the time having dialogues with them. Right, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I think in the old days, some guy might just, oh, I love this Bowie guy. Look at the way he dresses and he's going to be great. Let's, let's, just, let's just, you know, try to do something for him. And then when I was living mm-hmm. in New York in the late 90s, right around the strokes time, there would be mm-hmm. A&R guys from labels at Mercury Lounge seeing the showcase yep. acts. But I noticed even then that most of the time they were looking at the other A&R guys to see if there were smiles on their faces rather than looking at the band that often. They were just like looking and seeing what they were interested in. And now they just don't have to go to gigs at all. They yeah, can look at numbers. That is a bit you know? disheartening. I, mean, I think it's funny. I, I, I remember, yeah, go, going to South by and it was like whatever the big artist was at South by Southwest or CMJ, you're like, that's it. You know, like I, I remember going sneaking into Arcade Fire at Mercury Lounge for CMJ and it was it was an insane asylum in there. It was incredible. Um, And I don't know. I think some of that, though, maybe it was just my age. Like I, I was less jaded and more just like in wonder of everything I experienced versus I don't know if I would have that same attitude if I tried to go. You know, I might see a line and be like, I don't know. I don't yeah. want to deal with it. <laughs> it's it's hard to keep the childlike wonder. Yeah. Especially if you've knocked on the backstage door before and you know the <laughs> yeah, people back exactly. there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Touche. Um, you know, so what what would you say? I mean, you talked about some of the other music that you've heard and listened to now that moves you. But like, you know, what are your thoughts on folks like Harry Styles and stuff now to where that I mean, that music is is like it's assembled in a way that, you know, um, what as it was that song. Fantastic song for me. I mean, I, I really enjoy it, but it, there's it's very like predictable per se. Well, just to show what kind of person I've never heard that person's music before. You know, I've seen <laughs> I've seen more than two billion news articles with his name in it, but nothing from the nothing sure. from the imagery or the news articles titles made me want to listen to music made by that human. You know. Sometimes you just look at a picture, you go, oh, what do they do? Oh, wow. But yeah. that, that, he wasn't a photo that yeah. made me no, want to I, hear I, that's music. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like I, I ended up hearing it just because I had no choice. You know, like I'm at a gym or I'm at something and you just hear it and it, it becomes like this earworm that's just stuck in your head where it's like, you know, and you're just like, ah, it's like a ringtone. I don't know. But um, I, I still have, I still have lots of hope for, for new music. Me and, too. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, Gordon, I, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very, very, very much for chatting with me and, and talking about this. I will definitely plug uh, the book, uh, The World is Going to Love This, uh, Up from the Basement with the Strokes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll see you. Great to meet you, Gordon. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lull and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, do all the deals. 
the things that you do when you like things. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a message. We'll put it in a future episode or email us at info at If you want to hang out with us and join the Blam fam, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo. We have tons of exclusive episodes, exclusive shows from the Triple J show to Blamo Presents Derek Guy. And last but not least, the core, the core, the amazing Slack community. All right, folks, we'll see you soon.